Lord, what we just sang is true, that no power of hell and no scheme of man can ever pluck us from your hand if we're in Christ. God, we even have a greater promise than that, that no wrath of God will ever destroy us if we're in Christ. Today, as we look at your faithfulness to Noah and your faithfulness to the world in your promise never to flood the world again, we want to be moved to look beyond that to the even better promise that for those who are in Christ, there is no wrath to be felt, no destruction to be endured. We thank you for that. So God, we pray that you would use Genesis 8 and Genesis 9 this morning to point us to this Christ who has purchased every good gift for us. This Christ in whom all of your promises are yes and amen. Let us not leave today amazed with Noah or with um, sappy thoughts about a rainbow but with a great and exalted view of Christ who's purchased us for your glory. So we pray in His name now. Amen. Before we begin reading in Genesis 8, I just want you to notice the first two words of the chapter. Two of the most hope-giving words in all the Bible. But God. The reason why... Those words are so pregnant with hope is because of what we read in the end of Genesis 7. The end of chapter 7, we read, and you can see yourselves as you scan back now, that the floodwaters that God had brought upon the earth wreaked devastation and wreaked death for 150 days. There, verse 24 of chapter 7, the water prevailed upon the earth 150 days. Now just to get a picture of that, don't look outside and whine about three days of rain. Think back two years or a year and three months to I believe it was December 26, 2004 to what happened to people who were minding their own business on the beaches of Indonesia and India and all the other countries around the Indian Ocean. When in a moment... Without warning, they were engulfed with water that literally swept them away and leveled their villages to the ground. If you can picture the scenes that you saw, particularly from the coastline of Indonesia, and then multiply that times 150 days, and then realize that in the flood in the end of Genesis 7, villages weren't just knocked to the ground, they were completely wiped off of the face of the earth. When the flood was over, there was nothing but grass and trees and mountains, just as it was when God had created the world many years before. Everything and everyone was gone. That's what happened in the end of Genesis 7. And that makes Genesis 7 one of the blackest sections of the Bible. But Genesis 8 turns a corner. Genesis 8, after reading about all the devastation, begins with, but... God. It's a wonderful reminder of God's great commitment 
to show mercy even amidst the greatest of human sin and rebellion. It's a wonderful reminder that God is a God of grace. Man was desperately wicked. Man deserved to be punished. And man was utterly wiped off the face of the earth in God's fury. But God remembered Noah. It's amazing when you think about it. And when you read through the rest of the Bible, you find that but God is a recurring, wonderful theme in the Bible. Even at the end of the book of Genesis, when you get to the last section of the book, it's about a man named Joseph who was sold into slavery by his brothers, turned into a slave. And when he finally reunited with them in Genesis chapter 50, he said these words, As for you, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good, that many lives would be preserved this day. Another example is in Psalm 73. David says, My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Acts 2, Peter preaching about the death of Jesus, what we just sung about, says it like this, This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put Him to death. But God raised Him up again, putting an end to the agony of death through Him. Romans 5, Paul writes, One will hardly die for a righteous man, though for, a good man, perhaps, though for the good man perhaps someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates His love for us in that while we were yet sinners... Christ died for us. And Paul writes again in Ephesians 2, You were dead in your trespasses and sins and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us in Christ Jesus, has set you free, or even when we were dead in our transgressions, has made us alive together with Christ. But God, but God, but God, as bad as humans are, but God, as bad as our circumstances may be, but God, as unfaithful as we are, but God, over and over and over again in the Scriptures. And I think those two words, but God, are a wonderful summary of my theology and I think a wonderful summary of the whole Bible. But God, that's the story of the Bible. It's a phrase that reminds us that God treats us all better than we deserve, isn't it? It's a phrase that reminds us that God works even the worst circumstances for the good of those who love Him. It's a reminder that the God with whom we have to do is a God of grace and a God of mercy. A God who in wrath remembers mercy. So no matter how bad my circumstances may get, no matter how frustrated I may be with myself, I can cope as long as there is a but God in my future. And I hope that that's true for you. I hope that you have a but God view of the world and of yourself and of the circumstances in your life. If you don't, I hope that God will give you one today through Genesis 8 and 9. And if you do, I hope He will remind you. I hope God will encourage you and strengthen you today to walk in hope. Because one of the great but God stories in the Bible is before your eyes now in Genesis 8 and 9. We might summarize the whole flood account from Genesis 6 through Genesis 9 with a sentence like this. Men and women were desperately wicked and they were promise breakers. But God is the ultimate promise 
keeper. That's the story of the flood, and that's the story of the Bible. And so I want us to begin to read it now together in Genesis 8. We'll start by reading the first 19 verses together. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the cattle that were with him in the ark. And God caused a wind to pass over the earth and the water subsided. Also the fountains of the deep and the floodgates of the sky were closed and the rain from the sky was restrained and the water receded steadily from the earth and at the end of 150 days the water decreased. In the seventh month, on the seventeenth day of the month, the ark rested upon the mountains of Ararat The water decreased steadily until the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains became visible. Then it came about at the end of forty days that Noah opened the window of the ark which he had made, and he sent out a raven, and it flew here and there until the water was dried up from the earth. Then he sent out a dove from him to see if the water was abated from the face of the land. But the dove found no resting place for the sole of her foot, so she returned to him into the ark, for the water was on the surface of all the earth. Then he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark to himself. So he waited yet another seven days, and again he sent out the dove from the ark. The dove came to him towards evening, and behold, in her beak was a freshly picked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the water was abated from the earth. Then he waited yet another seven days and sent out the dove, but she did not return to him again. Now it came about in the 601st year, in the first month, on the first of the month, The water was dried up from the earth. Then Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the surface of the ground was dried up. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth was dry. Then God spoke to Noah, saying, Go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth that they may breed abundantly on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth, went out by their families from the ark. That's a story about how God always keeps His promises, even when human beings don't hold up to their end of the bargain. And we see that it's a story about God keeping His promises from what we just read at the beginning of verse 1. But God remembered Noah. In the midst of the torrents of God's anger in the flood, He remembered Noah. The word remembered is important. Because for God to remember something means that He's pointing us back to a time in the past where He, where something happened that He's now in the present remembering. Specifically, I think the word remembered points us back to the promise God had made to Noah in chapter 6, verses 17 and 18, where He said, Behold, I, even I, am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life from under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall perish, but I will establish My covenant with you, and you shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. So in 6.18, God made a promise to Noah, and in chapter 8, verse 1, God remembered Noah by remembering that promise and bringing Noah through the flood. We know that that's what he must have been remembering in verse 1 because verses 2 through 19 then go on to show how God remembered and kept his promise to Noah. So God fulfilling his promise, God remembering his promise to Noah, God the promise keeper right here in the beginning of chapter 8. In fact, the main reason for the existence of this somewhat elongated passage 
uh, about all that happened in the days when Noah was on the ark. The reason why it exists is to put before our eyes a vivid portrait of the faithfulness and promise keeping of God over a long period of time. As you read uh, these verses that we just read, it kind of reminds you of one of those scenes in the movie where things are happening in the present tense and then they're skipping ahead a little bit. And so at the bottom of the screen, the subtitle will read two months later or six years later or it'll have the date or whatever it is to know, let you know that they've moved forward in time. That's what's happening here in these verses. Time after time, God is flashing up subtitles and moving the time along for us so that we figure out how long Noah and his family were on the ark. And God did that on purpose. Not simply so that we could exactly date what Noah was doing and when he was doing it, but God kept giving us the dates, kept giving us the time frames to show us that as calendar page after calendar page was torn away and Noah was still on the ark, that God was still remembering Noah. Verse 1 hangs over this whole chapter to say, despite the fact that it looks like I've forgotten you and you're on the ark for a long time, Noah, I remember you. And I'm going to let you keep tearing off those calendar pages so that you see that long or short, difficult or easy circumstances, I am there. So when we open the chapter, uh, we find that Noah and his family have been confined on the ark for 150 days. That's what it said at the end of chapter 7 in verse 24. When we arrive at verse 4 of chapter 8, we find that their little ocean voyage had stretched out now to five months. Verse 5, the subtitle then is going to read two and a half months later. So they've been on seven and a half months by the time we get to verse 5. And by the time we reach verse 6, the waiting game has pushed itself out to nearly nine months. And then when they finally exit the ark in verses 14 through 19, we find, comparing it with chapter 7, verse 11, that they and the animals had been cooped up on this ark for one year and ten days. One year and ten days on a boat with all these animals. Nowhere to go. Not exactly a carnival cruise, was it? But, written over it all is, God remembered Noah. It may have seemed like God had forgotten, but what we actually have in chapter 8 is one year of smelly, stir-crazy, claustrophobic faithfulness on the part of God. God was there the whole time. And we see Noah and the animals finally running down the ramp, exiting the ark. We realize it was worth the trouble. It was worth the trouble when they got to come and experience God's grace in this new world that He had created. So I picture Noah and his family running down the ramp and getting out onto the grass, running back and forth, touching the trees, smelling the flowers, maybe kissing the ground, and having a royal party in the name of the Lord. God has remembered us. And look at this world that He has given us. Look at how He has protected us and watched over us through this last 375 days. All of this is here as a reminder that God's faithfulness, though it doesn't always work out for our short-term comfort, always works for our long-term happiness and our long-term good. And that's important because some of you may be in the middle of your ark experience right now. Everything may seem chaotic and crazy and with the eyes of the flesh, it sure doesn't look like a covenant-keeping, faithful God is steering the vessel of your life. But don't doubt the wisdom and the goodness of God. We see it here. And don't forget the alternative. 
It's better to live in the shadowy and sometimes uncomfortable confines of faith in God than it is to be on the outside of the ark looking in, isn't it? Much better to be with God even through the trials. So returning to our opening theme for a moment, maybe we can get help from a sentence like this. Your life, like Noah's life, may seem like a zoo right now, but God is in complete control. That's what we learn in the beginning of chapter 8. And as we move on with the rest of chapter 8 and then chapter 9, I want you to see that not only was God faithful to this initial promise that He made to Noah, that He would protect him through the flood, but then God is going to go on and make another promise to Noah, a promise to Noah that extends beyond Noah to every human being that would ever live on the earth, including you and I today. There is a promise from God for you and for me right here in this chapter today. And we can read it as we read verses 20 through 22 of chapter 8. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. The Lord smelled the soothing aroma and the Lord said to Himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man. For the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth and I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains seed time and harvest and cold and heat and summer and winter and day and night shall not Cease. It's a promise to us all, isn't it? It's the first of several major covenants that God has made with fallen humankind in the Scriptures. As we walk through these verses and the ones that follow, I want you to notice that God's covenant with the human race in Genesis 8 and 9 is still in effect in 2006. We're going to talk about how we can see that. But I also want you to see as we think about this covenant that God would never flood the earth again, I want you to see uh, that this covenant demonstrates some wonderful principles for what it's like for us to walk in the new and better covenant that God has made for us in Jesus. So we'll try to do two things. We'll try to think about this covenant and then let this covenant about never flooding the earth again point us forward to think about the covenant God has made with us in Jesus. But before we do any of that, let's define the word covenant so we're all on the same page about what we're talking about. A covenant is a mutual covenant contract made between two parties. It's a promise agreement. Uh, The word covenant is a little more serious than the word contract, but that's the best word we have to describe it. It is a mutual promise contract. And the most clear uh, example that we have it in our modern culture is the covenant between a man and his wife. Right? That's why we have a ceremony. We take that seriously because this is a lifelong covenant, contract, commitment, promise to one another. And so throughout the Bible, we find God entering these kinds of covenants with various different people. Promissory contracts with various different people. And it's a thrilling thought when we just pause and think about who we are and who He is that the God of the universe who owes us nothing and the God of the universe who never fails in His promises would actually decide to enter into a promissory agreement with us. That God would bind Himself to us That God would say to us, this is what I'm going to do. I will not break my promise. And so now, in some way, because of His initiative, God is beholding to us. And we want to be careful with that and not think that God owes us anything because everything that God may give to us and promise to us is by grace. But by His own initiative, God has said, I promise you this. And I will grant it. That's an amazing thing. And that's what a covenant is. 
a promise, a contract between God and a certain group of people or a person. And so again, in verses 20 through 22, we have the first of several major covenants. And this particular covenant happens to be an unconditional covenant and a universal covenant with the entire human race. He says, I'll read it again, I will, here's the promise, I will never again curse the ground on account of man. I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest and cold and heat and summer and winter and day and night shall not cease. That's a promise. And if you scan down to chapter 9, verses 8 and 11, we'll read them together in a moment, but you find that he repeats the promise in chapter 9, verses 8 and 11, and he specifically explains what he means, namely that he will never again destroy the earth through a flood of water. So that's the promise. Though it may not look like it outside today, God has promised that He will never again destroy the whole earth with a flood. And that's a promise to the whole earth and everyone who lives on it, isn't it? And so it's a promise for us. There are no conditions to be met as you read it there. It's just a promise without conditions. There are no exception clauses included in the promise. It's simple and straightforward. In chapter 9, verse 11, I establish my covenant with you and all flesh shall never again be cut off by flood of water. If you look around at the world, you can see every day that God has been faithful to that promise. From that day until this. For one thing, we're all still here, aren't we? But for another thing, summer and winter and springtime and harvest have never ceased on the earth from that day to this, and they never will according to the promise of God in chapter 8, verse 22. There's never been a day where the sun's rays failed to kiss the morning sky, and there never will. That's not evolutionary chance. That's not Mother Nature doing her thing. That's not God winding up the earth like a clock and then letting it go. That is God actively, daily, being faithful to His promise. Furthermore, every first flower of spring, every heat wave in July, every harvest of corn and cotton in the autumn, every first December snow, all of those are signals and testimonies to the fact that God has kept His promise. So the dawn of every new day and the turning of the seasons always should point us back to the faithfulness of God to His promise in Genesis 8, 21 and 22. I was reading a Welsh pastor this week named Peter Williams and he said it like this, The world God has created has a rhythm to it. It is not chaotic and capricious, but orderly and reliable. And this reliability and dependability in creation is a reflection of God's own nature. In a confused and uncertain day such as ours, it is good to know that we can rest on the total dependability of God. Remember that when you wake up tomorrow morning and it's daylight. Remember it as the seasons change. And we're in that process right now from winter to spring, aren't we? God has promised and He will do it. Before we go on, from these verses, I want to point out just one other aspect of this promise in verse 21. And that is that I want you to see that the covenant that God made in verse 21 and following was and is based on God's grace and not on man's merit. It's an unconditional promise. 
And we read in verse 21 that it was made with God's full acknowledgement of the fact that the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. Isn't it amazing that he stuck that right in there? I'm never going to destroy the earth again. I'm never going to curse the ground again. And by the way, I realize that the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. God didn't go into this thing blind. He went into it knowing that we're sinners, knowing that we're going to turn our backs on Him and promising us this good promise anyway with no strings attached. So I want you to see that and I want to point that out to you because I want you to remember that God's covenant with Noah points to God's covenant with us through Jesus and that just like God's covenant with Noah, God's covenant with us through Jesus is irrespective of our works. It's made by God's grace and not because of our merit. When God promises to save us in Jesus fully and finally so that we will never be lost, He does that with full acknowledgement that the intent of man's thoughts is only evil continually. That the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. Chapter 8, verse 21. We do not have to earn our way into covenant with God. Noah didn't do it and neither must we. So, the very reason for God's promise to us in Jesus actually is our sin, isn't it? And the sin is then, therefore, no deterrent. So let's not think that all of a sudden, if we do a few good things and we become pretty good people, then God will start to make promises to us. That's not how it works. That's not the message this morning. Do some good things and God will promise you some good things. That's not it. First of all, you'll never do good enough. And second of all, we learn here and through the rest of the Scriptures that God delights in promising good to people who don't deserve it. That's what God is all about. He's a but God kind of God. He's not a so God. They were good. So God did them good. He's a but God kind of God. They were bad. But God did them good. That's the message of the Bible. So don't walk out this morning thinking, if I do really good and I'm righteous, then God will make some good promises to me. No. That's what you think you've missed the point. The lesson of Genesis 8 And the lesson of the cross of Jesus is that God wants to treat us better than we deserve. His promises are for undeserving sinners. And His promises are always promises of grace. Now, having said that, as we move into chapter 9, we need to realize that once God enters into a covenant with us by grace, He does have certain expectations for us. He has certain expectations for how His covenant people will live. So though our obedience is not required on the front end, it is certainly expected by God on the back end of the covenant. And we see that here in chapter 9, verses 1-7. through Let's read them together. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the terror of you will be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the sky with everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are given." Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give all to you as I gave the green plant. Only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Surely I will require your life blood. From every beast I will require it. And from every man, from every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. As for you, be fruitful and multiply, populate the earth abundantly, and multiply in it. So God gave Noah specific instructions for how He wanted him to live now that he had entered this covenant relationship with God. And the instructions very simply were twofold. 
Number one, Noah and his family were to repopulate the earth and they were to subdue the earth. They were to take the place of Adam and Eve and do what Adam and Eve failed to do. That was the first part of the instructions. And the second part of the instructions were that they were to refrain from murder under penalty of death. We see that very clearly in verse 6. And just as an aside, for those who might not be sure if the Bible teaches capital punishment in the case of murder, here it is. And it's also in Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 4, which you can look up later. The Bible does teach capital punishment. But the main thing I want to point out here is this. I want to point out the timing of God's commandments to Noah. I want you to see that God's commandments were given to Noah after he had been saved. And after God had entered into a covenant with him. Not before. So that Noah would be clear, obedience was not the key to relationship with God. Obedience is a result of a relationship with God. It's the same thing for Moses and the children of Israel. When did God give Moses and the children of Israel the Ten Commandments? After He saved them from the land of Egypt. Not before, so that they wouldn't think we got out of Egypt by being good. And it's the same thing for us who are in covenant with God through Jesus. God's requirements for us are given to us after we become believers. God's requirements for a Christian are there and they are certain. You can read them all throughout the Scriptures. But they are not prerequisites to entering into a covenant with God. They are the result of being in a covenant with God that began on the basis of grace. Now verses 8-17 through as we we move along, uh, which we need to do, uh, are a restatement of the same covenant that we saw in chapter 8, verses 21 and 22, but this time with an interesting twist. So let's read now 9, 8 through 17. Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, Now behold, I myself do establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you, of all that comes out of the ark, even every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, and all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood, neither shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. There's the covenant. There's the promise. But here's the twist. God said, verse 12, This is the sign of the covenant which I am making between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all successive generations. I set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be for a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. It shall come about when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow will be seen in the cloud and I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh and never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the cloud, then I will look upon it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is a sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh as on the earth. So as God re-explains the covenant to Noah, now He grants him and us a visible sign, a reminder of the promise that He made never to flood the earth again. And the sign was the rainbow. I set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of a covenant between me and the earth, He said. So the rainbow is for us and for Noah a visible reminder of God's gracious promise. And God even says it's a reminder for Himself of His promise. When I look at the rainbow, then I will remember my covenant with you. 
So God's made a sign for himself, for us, and for everyone who lives on this earth to remind us of what he said here. So it's just, just a sign. It's like circumcision in the Old Testament that symbolized that the people had been cut off from the rest of the world and made clean for God. It's a symbol like baptism is in the New Testament or the Lord's Supper in the New Testament, which both symbolize the death of Jesus. Baptism, His burial and resurrection. And the Lord's Supper, His broken body and shed blood. It's a sign like those things are of an unshakable covenant made by God with humanity. And again, to think about marriage, if you're married, you might think of your wedding ring. It's a visible symbol of a covenant made between you and your spouse, right? That's what the rainbow is, a visible symbol, a visible reminder to God and to us that He will never flood the earth again. And verse 16 is beautiful, and I want to read it again. He says, When the bow is in the cloud, then I will look upon it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. In other words, whenever God might be inclined to look upon the earth and see the sinfulness of man and pour out His anger again, He sees the rainbow in the cloud, He remembers the promise that He made, and He stays His hand. That's what the rainbow does for us. So when we see the rainbow, we don't say, oh, there's a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. When we see the rainbow, we don't say, oh, isn't that wonderful? That's beautiful. God made the rainbow. When we see the rainbow, we say, I deserve to die. And God has stayed His hand. Isn't that amazing? That's what the rainbow is. That's what it's about. The rainbow stretched out above the earth is like the blood of the Lamb splashed across the door frames of the people of Israel on the night when God sent the angel of the Lord through to kill the firstborn. And it says, when the angel of the Lord saw the blood spread out over the door, that He passed over that house and He stayed His hand. That's what the rainbow is like. And for us as Christians, the rainbow is a reminder of the blood of Jesus. When God looks at us as we really are, the only possible responses would be disappointment, Grief and wrath because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But when, by faith, we apply the blood of Jesus to the doorposts of our lives, then God looks at us and He sees the blood of Jesus spilt over us and He stays His hand. That's what the rainbow points to. That a God who ought to punish us has let us go free. The blood of Jesus, like Noah's rainbow, is the sign, the reminder to God and to us of His promise. The blood of Jesus is more than a mere sign, isn't it? The rainbow was a sign, but the rainbow did not have the power to save. Noah needed an ark also, didn't he? But the blood of Jesus is both the means of salvation and it's the reminder to God of that salvation. The blood of Jesus is the ark and the promise and the rainbow all rolled into one and a thousand times more precious. That's why I keep using Noah's flood to point to Jesus because Noah's rescue wasn't the greatest rescue. Ours is. Noah's ark wasn't the greatest ark. Jesus is. Noah's covenant wasn't the greatest covenant. The new covenant poured out in Jesus' blood is the greatest covenant. And Noah's rainbow wasn't the greatest sign either. 
the blood of Jesus spread out over our lives is the greatest sign. All these things that we've been reading about in the story of Noah point to the greater salvation that God has provided for us in the new covenant which was poured out in Jesus' blood. So when you read the flood story and when you teach it to your children and when you see a rainbow in the clouds, don't let your thoughts simply wander back to the ark and the animals and relief that finally this rain outside is going to end because God promised it would. Those are all wonderful things, but don't let your thoughts rest there. Get beyond that, remembering those things and letting those things in this most familiar Old Testament story point you forward to the most important story in the history of the world. Let this story be a signpost pointing you to Jesus who is infinitely greater than Noah and whose salvation is infinitely greater than that offered to Noah. I want to close the story by reading the rest of chapter 9. It's a sobering reminder, pun intended, sobering reminder when we read verses 18 through 29. Now the sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Ham was the father of Canaan. These were the three these were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was populated. Then Noah began farming and planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and uncovered himself inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were turned away so that they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine, he knew that his youngest son, what his youngest son had done to him. So he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, he shall be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the, God of the, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. Noah lived 350 years after the flood, so all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. A lesson here is simply a reminder of what we've already said, namely that Noah and his family did not earn God's favor by doing right. Nor could they have. This story reminds us that they were sinners, just like us. A fact that we have accented for the last three weeks as we've looked at the story of Noah and the flood. So God didn't enter His covenant with Noah based on Noah's good behavior. Rather, God entered a covenant relationship with Noah because, as we read in chapter 6, verse 5, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And we said that word favor means grace. So we saw in chapter 6 that Noah needed grace. And we see very clearly in chapter 9 that Noah needed grace. Neither he nor you nor I will ever get in on God's goodness by being good. And in this passage we're discovering that neither do we need to stay in on God's goodness by being good. If that were the arrangement, all of us would be in bad shape. So here's Noah, sprawled out, drunk and naked on his living room floor. Ever seen the show Cops? This looks like something from Cops. Especially when they film it in my home state. They see this kind of thing all the time. They would just sprawled out, looking like complete fools. Embarrassing. That's the biggest, the most accurate word we can use here. Embarrassing is what happened to Noah. The preacher 
sprawled out on his living room floor like a bearskin rug. That's what's happening here. It's not a pretty sight. It's not something that we would have probably included in the Bible had we written it. But it's a perfect example for us that God does not reward us according to our iniquities. Psalm 103.10 God treats us better than we deserve. We need to balance, balance our criticism of Noah by saying overall Noah was faithful to the Lord. This ugly scene is not indicative of his entire life. And we also need to say that God did indeed have expectations of Noah as we saw in chapter 9, verses 1-7. through seven. So it's not as though God just said, well, Noah, you can live however you want. No big deal. But the overall force of this portion of Noah's story is to remind us that God knows our frame and that He remembers that we are dust. And based on that, He treats us with grace and with mercy and better than we deserve. That's good news for many people who are generally faithful, but sometimes who do stupid, stupid things. Are you one of those people? I'm one of those people. I hope that I'm generally trying to follow the Lord, but sometimes I do and say really dumb things. And this story reminds me that God still loves me. And that God won't break His promise because I've broken mine. I'm so thankful that the Bible is honest about the shortcomings of its heroes. I'm even more thankful that my right standing with God doesn't fluctuate up and down every time I pull a Noah. That's the essence of God's covenant. That He is faithful when we are not. That's the nature of grace. That's the lesson of Noah. And that is, for us, the result of what Jesus did on the cross. So I just close with a simple question. Are you in that kind of a covenant with the ultimate promise keeper? Do you have that kind of secure relationship with God? Have you by faith accepted the completely free gifts of forgiveness and a new life in Jesus? Or are you still trying to earn your way in? A true Christian is happy to let his or her epitaph read something like this. She was a poor, inconsistent beggar of a soul. But God kept His promise.